So Sunday we'll break a little bit with, with our, our normal routine as we're not going to advance further into the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but we're going to do something I, th- I hope and pray will be beneficial for us. We're going to kind of remind ourselves uh, of, of where we've come in the Gospel of Matthew, remind us ourselves of the, of the uh, overarching thrust of Matthew's Gospel, um, really to help. We're, we're getting close to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, just a number of, of weeks left, and we're getting approaching what is really the hardest part of the Sermon on the Mount, some very strong, stark warnings um, that I think will make more sense to us and be more profitable to us as we remember the flow of the gospel. So we're going to recap some of the context of, of Matthew's gospel, recap the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the the over. The, the flows through it, the themes, the thematic kind of emphasis through it. And then we're going to take some time today just to read through the entire Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I think that is something that is a beneficial thing for the church that we almost never do or hear. That actually just reading through large sections together to hear from God's Word, to, to get uh, even a small taste of, of what that... Um, that gathered crowd around the hills of Galilee would have heard as they as they came up and and listened to Christ's teaching, just teaching after teaching as he continued on to instruct them. Um, but for that to be as beneficial as it could be, we need to remind ourselves of the context of of that of that crowd, what what they were experiencing, where they had been. Um, so that is what we will do this morning. Um, the uh, some circumstances that kind of came up last minute necessitated a little bit of a change uh, in our in our routine this morning. So our service does look a little different today, but um, it's always good to be able to come to worship, to pray, and to hear from God's word. So I ask you to join me in prayer, Father. We ask that you would overcome any. Um, Confusion or distraction that might might arrive from an altered course this morning, from having to change things up. I pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would give me the right words to say, the right things to include to really help us illuminate and understand the Sermon on the Mount, to be able to, to receive it as a whole to understand how things flow together, to, to get the impact of not just one verse at a time, but of the entire sermon, the entire set of teaching from Christ that, that he delivered to those crowds and those hills in Galilee. Father, open our ears, make us receptive. Give us new insight into your word, into the true meaning that, that is there, that has been there, that will be there. Father, we don't look for anything new. We don't, we don't want what is novel. We want what is old, what was intended, what is secure, what is strong, and what is lasting. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and all things make us more like Christ as we submit ourselves to his teaching and to his commands. We pray these things by Christ's name. Amen. I want to start with a little bit kind of a recapping uh, where we've been at in Matthew's gospel. 
to remember the, the audience, the intended audience of Matthew's gospel. Because each, each of the gospels are, have a little bit different of an emphasis, a little bit of a different intended audience. And so there's a different focus, a different thrust uh, that you need to be aware of and kind of looking out for how, how the author is trying to really uh, impact and, and explain the gospel in the intended way. Um, Matthew in particular is writing his, wrote his gospel to first century Jews. So it wasn't intended for a wider audience. It was intended for first century Jews. So there is a strong emphasis on being able to see Jesus as the climax of the Jewish religion. A strong emphasis to show that Jesus is in fact the fulfillment and the purpose of the faith of the patriarchs of Israel. To show that it had always been about Jesus, that Jesus isn't something new. He's not an outside force that came in and say and tried to take the people of God away from their traditions. He is the fulfillment and the purpose. So Matthew regularly throughout his gospel points back to the Old Testament to prove this point. These scriptures, that these words of Christ that would become the gospels and become part of the New Testament were not something that was intended to come and override what had come before. The scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures were used as evidence, each prophet as an independent witness to show that the man who was at the center of so much conflict in the nation of Israel was in fact the long-awaited and expected Jewish Messiah, the salvation of God. So Matthew and the other gospel writers labor to show that Jesus, even though he wasn't what they were expecting, especially Matthew, to this Jewish audience, that he wasn't what they were expecting. He wasn't less than they were expecting. He was so much more than they had been expecting. Matthew took special care to prepare the reader, to prepare this Jewish reader to be able to accept and embrace that the Messiah was for the world, not just for their nation. So think of even the timing timeline of when Matthew was, when he wrote this gospel and when this gospel had been delivered out. This is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the, the story and the tales of Jesus and what happened before and after. There's all these things that happened when there was disciples of Christ, the, 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 the church was growing. It's after these things that all happened, but yet it was before Israel had, was again scattered, before uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So Jesus, it, Matthew was writing to these Jews and trying to be able to explain to them what happened. And a big part of that was that it, the gospel was going out to Gentiles. So how do you convince Jewish the Jewish unbelievers at the time, but people who had believed in the Jewish faith and tradition that this gospel that was going on and believed by Gentiles wasn't something that was an abomination to where they had come from. It was actually the purpose. So Matthew takes care to show the inclusion of the Gentiles. We saw that in chapter one in the genealogy of Jesus, where there are multiple Gentile women included in the lineage of Christ, that even in bringing about the Messiah, God had used Gentiles. Even pointing back to Abraham and the promise to Abraham that the seed of Abraham would be a blessing to the nations, blessing to the whole world, not just to Israel. We see in the birth of Christ that 
that Christ, even though he wasn't honored as the coming king by his own people, but Christ was honored instead by the pagan kingmakers, these, these wise men, these magi from the east that came, these, these men who that was their role in society was to be able to recognize, to confer legitimacy on kings, to establish that authority. They were kingmakers. And they came because God had worked supernaturally through this cosmos, through the stars. And these men knew that a king had come. They traveled far to be able to come and bow down to worship at the feet of Christ, to recognize him as the promised king shown through the stars. So the first to come bow down and worship these Gentiles that came and recognized him as king. And we see even a little bit later on is as the established of Jesus was establishing his earthly ministry, the quoting of the prophecy that the people dwelling in darkness, this, these people that were dwelling in Galilee of the Gentiles, it was those people that a light had dawned upon them. In the arrival of John the Baptist, who came before Jesus, we see that he was all, he prepared the people for the message that something had changed. He, he began that message that the kingdom of heaven had arrived and that at the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, repentance was needed by the people. That there, there wasn't an immediate sense that their, their expectation was that Christ or that the Messiah would come, that he would throw off the oppression of the Romans and they would have means of celebrating immediately. But yet when John the Baptist came, who was to prepare the way for Christ, he came warning them that they needed to repent, that the kingdom of heaven is here, which should have been good news for God's people. But in fact, it was something that was they should have been fearful of because they had need to repent. They were not right with God. They needed to repent or they would face tragedy. The nation as a whole was not ready for God to dwell among them once again. Remember the presence of God dwelled, the tabernacle, to tabernacle is to dwell. So the presence of God had dwelled with, with Israel in the Old Testament and the Ark of the Covenant. His presence had sat on the mercy seat, the presence of God with his people and that had been lost to his people for a long time, but they were not ready for God to come and dwell among them once again. Because when Christ came, when God came back to his people to dwell among them, when they announced the arrival of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God being the establishment of the reign of God in his people, they were not commended for their faithfulness. They were not commended for their religion. They were not commended for how faithfully they had observed the traditions of their fathers. No, they were condemned and they were warned that if they did not repent, if they did not turn from everything that they had been hoping in, they would surely perish. The arrival of the kingdom of heaven meant that judgment was near at hand for the people of Israel. As I said, John the Baptist, his, his message to the people was to repent. So he prepared the way for Christ to come. He prepared a way for the reigning king to come among his people by telling them to repent, to turn away, to reject their righteousness of themselves. They needed to change and they needed to change fast. This was an urgent message from John the Baptist. We see that urgency carried throughout the book of Matthew. 
There is an urgency at that time that the people needed to do something. They needed to act. They needed to hear. They needed to listen. They needed to believe. They needed to obey. They needed to accept. Because something was coming. John the Baptist warned in Matthew 3, 7 through 10, he warned that the ax was already at the root of the tree. So that the trees were prepared, they were ready to be cut down and thrown into the fire. This was a sense of judgment that was coming. The looming doom that was over the people of Israel. And it was not some far out thing. John the Baptist said, in fact, no, it is the axe is already at the root. It, is, it was a desperate time for the people. They needed to believe. They needed to obey. They needed to repent. And there are warnings of impending judgment throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, we find a number of examples of these warnings of judgments. We see constant conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders of the day, that there was this clash between the king who had arrived, the king whom these Jewish leaders ought to have recognized, bowed down, worshipped, and rejoiced to see, and yet they rejected, they plotted against him, they conspired against him, they tried to trick him, to trap him. There was this constant conflict. Those who were blessed at the arrival of the kingdom were not the proud and lofty. They were not those who were deemed mighty, who were deemed righteous in Israel. There was not the high and mighty who thought that they were the ones who were going to achieve the most, who, who were thought they would be in the best position and be celebrated as the kingdom came in. No, they were not the ones who were blessed when the king came to his people. Those who were blessed were the, those who were poor in spirits, those who were mourners, who were meek, those who were longing after righteousness, knowing their inadequacy, knowing their brokenness before God. It was those who were merciful, those who were pure of heart, those who were peacemakers, those who were persecuted for righteousness sake. And that persecuted for righteousness sake often coming from those who thought themselves righteous. Those who were ill-treated by their nation, even as the prophets of old had been mistreated by their nation. So that in the Sermon on the Mount, that God's people were meant to be the salt of the earth. His people were meant to provide savor, to make the world more pleasing, more flavorful to God, but also to preserve. They were to be a buttress against the, the fall and the curse. They were to have an element, to, to have some of God's reign on this world, to hold back the darkness, to be a shining light. And yet they had failed in that. And what did Christ say about salt that had lost its saltiness? Its only use was to be thrown on the dirt and trampled under the feet. It's a warning for the people who had ceased to be fulfilling God's purpose for them. Jesus warned that even the most zealous and pious men in all of Israel did not have the righteousness that was necessary to see the kingdom of God. Something more was needed. That's the urgency of repent. The urgency of the kingdom is here. Repent. Because something more is needed than the best of you had the ability to obtain. 
There was urgency with this message that Christ brought. Urgency with all these teachings. Because the people were in a desperate condition. And if they didn't do something drastic, if something radical did not change, there was judgment coming. Even the most strict and pious people had missed the intention in the heart of God's law, and thereby they were breaking God's commandments because of the darkness in their heart. So these men that they held up as the most righteous, upstanding people in all of Israel, these Pharisees and these scribes, in fact, they were murderers, they were adulterers, they were oath-breakers. Even the good works of the best of the people, according to man's eyes, were saturated with hypocrisy. In truth, they were not serving God. They served themselves alone. And Jesus warned them, as we will read in a bit, that they already had their reward. They saw themselves as building up something for themselves. They would make a name for themselves that God would surely celebrate them and give them high positions in his kingdom. Yet they had the reward in full. Men had thought highly of them, or at least said so in their presence. Men might praise them, but God surely would not. Their judgment was coming. So we think of the the direct context of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is the first of five lengthy teachings of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Matthew. It is the longest section of teaching by Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount was this content that is in the sermon was either taken from a single teaching session, that's possible, or it was taken from a a group of of teachings over a, a few hours or a few days. We'll see, it doesn't take terribly long to read through the Sermon on the Mount. It wouldn't have taken terribly long for Jesus to teach through this section. Yet we know that his teaching at this time covered a lengthy period of time as crowds gathered around him. Either way... We know that this teaching of Jesus is representative of what Jesus did as he, and taught as he traveled throughout all of Galilee. And remember that as Jesus traveled through Galilee at this point in his earthly ministry, his, his traveling and his teaching was accompanied by the healing of every disease and affliction among the people. That Jesus literally banished sickness. He banished illness. He banished demon possession. So, So spiritual and physical malady and affliction, he banished them from the land as he traveled from regions and people who who weren't in the towns that he visited went to them, that people were carried to him, that people came to him from all the land to hear him speak and to be healed. So the king who came was undoing the works of the curse in all these places that he went There's no wonder that as he, even as he secluded himself, which is what we find at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus went up to the mountain or went up to the hill country in Galilee, went up and retreated back with his disciples, that even when he tried to be more by himself or to have a smaller group, the crowds came, they hounded him. They did not give him any kind of leave or space because they wanted to be healed. They wanted to see the spectacle But we know, we just listened to the words of Christ, that not all of them believed in him, not all of them accepted him and trusted him, because he has strong warnings mixed throughout the teaching. 
The Sermon on the Mount serves as a, as a messianic manifesto. It relates to the, the new reality, the new paradigm, the shift that happened in the foundation of the world at the arrival of the kingdom. Something had changed with the arrival of the kingdom of God and the world would not be the same. That things had been building to this moment and that something massive had happened of extreme importance. And this, this sermon is illustrating the reality of that. After the, the announcement of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, you go back to John the Baptist, he announced, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And people would have been desperate to know, well, if the kingdom is here, am I a part of the kingdom? Am I welcome in the kingdom? What is my place in the kingdom? Especially when they heard the warnings of John the Baptist and later Christ to the religious leaders of the day. So the Sermon on the Mount and other teachings of Jesus serves as a, as a means of showing the different reality of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, how they would look and how different they would be from those religious leaders that Israel had to that point been following. The demands of Christ, and that's one thing when people would come to him and wondering, what, it, what does it mean to be saved? What must I do to be a part of the kingdom? What's my place in the kingdom? They want to know, what do I have to do? What's my burden? Because the leaders in Israel had placed heavy burdens upon them for many generations. They had demanded things of them, demanded that they, that they look the part, that they, they try to please and, and satisfy the expectations of these Pharisees, these professional, pious people. They had placed heavy yokes on them, placed developing tradition after tradition, adding list and list of rules, making them have to do more and more if they would meet any kind of religious standard. There's just a heavy burden, a crushing burden. And people wanted to know at the coming of the kingdom, is there going to be more of the same? What must I do to be welcomed here? But the demands of Christ were very different than the leaders of the people. On the one hand, Jesus demanded perfection. And we'll see that in the Sermon on the Mount. He, his demands, there was no, no room for good enough. No room for just meeting some man-made standard. The demand was perfection. Yet at the same time as Jesus demanded perfection, his yoke was easy and his burden was light. So his, his demand, his call to the people was drastically different than that of the Pharisees and the scribes. This paradox of Jesus' claims only makes sense because of the radical changes brought forth by the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Because things had changed so drastically as God came to his people. The Sermon on the Mount, as, as some take it and some try to, to wear it as, as a burden to bear and as a standard to achieve, the Sermon on the Mount does not represent a map on how you can become right with God. As Jesus said these things, he did not say, you know, in the Beatitudes, blessed is the person who is able to make themselves like this. Or blessed is the person who is able to do this in their life. Or blessed is the person who is able to convince others they are like this. It, it describes not what somebody must try to will themselves to become. It describes somebody who has already been made right with God. 
that the radical change that would overcome somebody as they trusted in Christ, as they accepted God's way of salvation, God's plan for them, God's Messiah for them, as the radical change that would come about in them, that Jesus is able to say, not this is what you must do to be made right with God, but this is the radical change that will be real of you if you do in fact trust in God. If you believe, if you are already saved of God, then this will be the radical new paradigm under which you live. So drastically different than that that yoke that the Pharisees had been seeking to put upon the people. So with that just little element of context, I'm going to read through the whole sermon on the mount to be looking for these themes of the of the kingdom look for the things see these themes of of the radical change that was there as Jesus was in conflict continually with the traditions and the teachings of their religious leaders so I'm going to read starting in Matthew 4 actually verse 23 and we'll read through the end of chapter 7 And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought them all the sick, those afflicted with different various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall receive, shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my accounts. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown down and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least 
in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is hungry, angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court with him, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his hearts. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. 
Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not pray like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. What if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow was thrown into the oven? Will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, where there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gates. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who has built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. 
for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Reading it all in one shot gives us a little bit more of an ability just to see the flow of these things, does it not? And we are coming to a very weighty part in the next weeks on, in this sermon. Think of these, these warnings that come at the end of the sermon, which we are, we are getting to soon. That the gate is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Yet the way of destruction is broad, and there are many who find it. This, this theme that we talked about earlier of the urgency of, of making decisions, the urgency of, of dealing with the arrival of the kingdom at heaven. This, it continues through here the, as the people were warned that there will be false prophets among them. That they had to be discerning. They had to know, as Jesus had explained to them throughout the Sermon on the Mount, they had to know what marked a true citizen of the kingdom of God and what marked the hypocrites, the false. They had to know that. They had to know what that fruit would look like because there were those among the people that were seeking their destruction. There were those among the people who were going to do anything that they could to bar people from entering the kingdom, to try to close that narrow gate, to try to stop them from finding relief when the judgment came. So they had to know, they had to understand what a Christian looked like, what a Christian was, how a Christian lived and thought and spoke. Some of the scariest words, I think, in all of Scripture will be that there will be those who will say, Lord, Lord, did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not perform many mighty works in your name? And Christ will say, I did not know you. And you be able to deal with this passage. Realize it is not those who say, or even say big and mighty things, or even make big displays of their actions, but those who do the will of the Father in heaven. And to see that those who heard his words and believed in him, built their house on the rock and those who didn't built their house on the shifting sands. And when this storm came, one was left standing and one was utterly destroyed. And we know from history that within a generation of Christ teaching these things, that judgment came, that these, the picture of some of these things happened those Jews who heard Jesus talking, heard him preaching, and who placed their faith in him, who followed him, obeyed him, who did the will of the Father, who became citizens of heaven, those Jews built their foundation on a rock. And when the, the weather, the storm came, the storm of the wrath and the fury of God came upon the nation of Israel, those who established themselves on the rock who is Christ stood strong. And the rest of the nation... Well, great was the fall of it. 
that the urgency that was carried throughout this gospel that, that Matthew is writing, Matthew did not know when the judgment was going to fall. He did not know when Christ was going to come in power and bring about this doom that Israel had been warned about. He didn't know when it was going to be, but he knew it was coming. And he warns throughout the gospel, Christ's words in this sermon warned throughout that there is something coming that needs to be understood, to be dealt with. That urgency that was there. And we saw, if we look back in history, we can see why there was such urgency in these words because judgment came swiftly and it came strong. And even though we live great many centuries after that judgment befell in the nation of Israel, we also know that there is a judgment that is coming. There is a doom still appointed. A judgment for this world that will make the judgment of God in AD 70 on the nation of Israel pale in comparison. That is but a small appetizer of the the wrath of God that will be poured out upon man for sin. So that urgency ought still be there for us. That we get complacent because it has been so long. It, it, it didn't take but 30 or 40 years when you see Peter writing in 2 Peter for talking about men who are scoffing, saying, when will that day come? Every, you say these things are going to happen, yet today is like yesterday. Every day is the same. They're mocking because Jesus hadn't come back yet. That was 30 or 40 years when Peter was writing that after the, after the events. Already were they mocking. And now we've got many centuries later and people, yes, continue to mock and believe that these things aren't real, that there isn't an impending doom. And no, we do not know when it will be, but we know that the message is urgent. We know that the world changed because of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, that Christ is reigning on his throne, that all of his enemies are being placed underneath his feet and his judgment will come like a roaring flood, like an insurmountable inferno. That judgment is coming. We must know that. We must feel that. We must live in that reality. We must operate out of that reality. To as, as Matthew and Jesus and the apostles, as, as they warned others, and they, they carried that message because they knew that doom was coming. They knew judgment was coming. They wanted people to turn away, to repent, to believe because the doom was coming. It was close at hand. Even now it is close at hand and not just for one nation, but for the whole world. So as in the coming weeks, we continue And if we complete the Sermon on the Mount and we continue in the Gospel of Matthew, keep these themes in your mind, this, the, the radical change in reality at the arrival of the kingdom, the impending doom on those who would reject the Messiah with our understanding of when that actually happened, what that looked like when that happened, and our knowledge that it's, that was but a taste of the judgment that is to come. Let it, let it warn us against complacency. Let it warn us against 
apathy may it drive us to increasingly seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and to carry the words of Christ, the words of the apostles, to carry the warning, carry the words of John the Baptist to all the unbelieving world that they must repent for the kingdom is at hand and there is a judgment that is following close behind. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for the warnings in Scripture. I thank you for even things that are hard to understand or hard to to face. I pray that you would not crush us under the weight of things, but make us sober and aware. Make us ready for action. Make us faithful to live in the reality of your kingdom. To know that there is a difference, a vast chasm between those who have built their foundation on Christ and those who have built their foundation on anything else. May we believe, may we follow and obey. May your kingdom come. Praise things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.